Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. I invite you to join me there as we study verse by verse. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 25 this morning and hopefully complete uh, through verse 32, the end of the chapter. Yesterday afternoon, I came home to find the smell that was unmistakable of a roast cooking on the oven, on the stove. And I love roasting potatoes. In fact, I'm a meat and potatoes guy. I like things that are simple, that are hearty and are substantive. And uh, that meal fits the bill. If I could describe the fourth chapter of Ephesians, it would be meat and potatoes Christianity. It really gets down to the heart of the matter. I think that's why I keep returning to the book of Ephesians in my own personal study. And I hope to throughout my ministry career as I share with you because it really is the essence. First of all, what it means to be a Christian and then what it means to live like a Christian. And that's what we're talking about today. The title of the message, in fact, is Living Together in a New Way. You might have noticed one of the songs we just sang had a lyric that said, teach us how to love each other. What could be more basic to Christianity than that, right? How we're to live together. And that really is what the last three chapters of Ephesians is all about. It teaches us that first of all, we are new creatures in Christ. We've been born again. We have a new nature, but also that now we have a new kind of living. Our relationships are changed. First of all, with other Christians. And then as we get down to chapters five and six, Specific relations like uh, husbands and wives and children and parents, bosses and workers. And so it's a very practical um, part of the Bible. So let's read now Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now you remember that Paul's style is to move from the general to the specific. He's still on the general now. He's still talking about how Christians of all ages, of all levels of sanctification are to interact with one another. And so he really brings it home and he says, here are a list of commands and a list of prohibitions. Things that a Christian must do to please God and things that a Christian must avoid doing to please God. He begins with how we speak to one another. 
And so the first point in your outline is honest lips. Honest lips. Proverbs 12, 19 says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Apparently the culture of ancient Ephesus was not that dissimilar to our own and was not that dissimilar to other ancient cultures. One of which Paul says in the book of, of Acts when addressing this group of people the first time, he says, one of your own has said, all Cretans are liars. That was his introduction of his sermon, all you people are liars. Now apparently Paul did not read the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But he just uh, said it right there. Your, your problem is that you're, you're, you're liars. Well, the truth is um, they're liars because they're sinners. And this is a problem with every culture. It has been noted that dishonesty, lying, is a universal vice. I defy you to travel to any country on the planet, invest yourself in any culture on earth that does not have a problem with lying. We all do. Every age of humanity has a problem with lying. You know, parents, that from the moment your children can put a subject and verb together, they are not only capable, but prone to lying. You do not have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. And Dr. Adrian Rogers was fond of saying that uh, one is never more like the devil when one is telling a lie. That's because Jesus said that Satan is a liar and a father of it. God hates dishonesty. Proverbs 16, excuse me, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 lists seven things that God hates. This is what it says. There are six things which the Lord hates, yet seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Number two on the list of things God hates is a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Of the seven things that God hates, two of them are a form of lying. And so that should tell us very clearly what God thinks about it. And, and so Paul says to Christians, put away lying. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. Well, you say, well, I don't have a problem with lying. I know and have known since childhood that one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not lie. And yet we often give ourselves a lot of leeway of what is lying or not lying. Especially in business, right? Because we have been taught that you have to play the game by the rules of the game. And if everyone else is being dishonest, for me to compete in that, I've got to engage in that as well, not according to Scripture. In fact, remember this summer when we were studying the book of Amos, one of the things that brought judgment and condemnation on the nation of Israel is that their businessmen and women were practicing dishonesty. They had unjust measuring devices. They were cheating the customers. God called them on it. But we can also be dishonest at home. Telephone rings, we're tired, the teenager answers it. May I speak to your mother? And she says, I'm not here. That's another form of lying. In our everyday conversation when we skew the truth a little to the right or the left to make ourselves look better than we actually are. In fact, Dr. Barnes in his commentary says this sort of lying in conversation is defined as he that is in the habit of giving a coloring to his narratives, 
of conveying a false impression by the introduction or the suppression of circumstances that are important to the right understanding of the account. Our swimming team could have used that definition. He that skews the truth either to the right or to the left, leaving out or adding to, to give a false impression of the true circumstances. It's often been noted that no man has a good enough memory to be an effective liar. You forget what lie you've told, so you tell another one, eventually you're caught in your own trap. So tell the truth, children, all the time, and you only have to remember one story. But the, the question is, why is it so important to God that in the church we lay aside falsehood and speak truth to one another? He tells us, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We, we have a new set of relationships when we are born again. We now become part of the church, the church writ large of all Christians everywhere, but specifically the context of the local church, in this case, the church at Ephesus. And we owe and have obligations to one another to be honest. Why? For unity's sake. Because you know, if you're married or you own a business or you're on a team, that nothing undermines unity faster than dishonesty. It's true in a marriage, it's true in a church. When I'm counseling young couples who want to be married, we start in this passage and we talk about trust and how it's important to build trust. And I compare trust to a retirement account that you have to pay into it a little bit consistently over time and it takes many years to build that nest egg, doesn't it? Sometimes 30, 40, 50 years of consistent contributions until you're ready to retire. But even if it took you 30, 40, 50 years to build the retirement nest egg, you can blow it all on one spin of the roulette table in Las Vegas, right? And so you may spend years in a marriage building up trust, but from one moment of pleasure, one hour of unwise thought, you can undo all of that. And that trust level can go right back down to zero. Paul knows that. God, of course, knows that. And so he says, tell the truth with one another. I have a friend who is a church planter. And he called me recently and he was talking about some of the problems in their church. It's just a few years old. And in many ways, it's a wonderful fellowship. They've grown and people um, are taught sound doctrine they know the Bible, and yet they, they just don't trust each other. Someone says something, and they take it personally, and it's just this constant having to have meetings and soothe over feelings. And we were, we were talking through why it is like that, and I said, I think it may be because they haven't lived long enough and gone through hard times together to learn to trust each other. Our church here has been around about 130 years. And, and occasionally we'll lose a family, they'll move off somewhere and someone will say, what are we gonna do? Such and such has moved. Or we'll lose a staff member and they'll say, oh, what are we gonna do? This staff member moved on. And I have the same answer every time. That, you know, this church has survived two world wars, a fire, a flood, the Great Depression, and 11 years with me as their pastor. They can make it. <laughs> I promise you. And one of the reasons we can make it is that we have built trust, haven't we? 
We've gone through hard times. We've buried each other's parents and children. We've been at the hospital with each other, and we continue to. And as you go through those difficult days together, have you ever seen men who were in World War II get together for their reunion? That's people that have trust. They've been in the foxhole together. And they may go 10, 15 years without seeing each other, but when they do, this goes right back to 1944. They've gone through the fire. And so when we lie to one another, when we're dishonest with one another, what we're doing is we are loosening the ties that bind us. And no Christian ever wants to be guilty of loosening the ties that bind, right? We want to be strengthening those. And so he says, lay aside dishonesty. Put it away as a dirty garment. Well, we must uh, move on. Second thing we see here is not only uh, honest lips, but, but busy hands. Look at verse 28. Remember, these people are coming out of a wicked culture. They're new Christians. He says, he who steals must steal no longer. That's meat and potatoes Christianity right now. Okay. Let me interpret for you. If you used to steal, stop it. <laughs> That's all he's saying. If you were in the habit of making your living dishonestly, many of them were pilferers and thieves and taking advantage of tourists that came into Ephesus to worship Diana. Stop it. Get a job. Look what he says. But rather, instead of stealing, you must labor, work, performing with your own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. I'm going to run for president one day on that platform. That's my economic strategy. Get a job, work hard, provide for your family, help the less fortunate. That is God's economic strategy in a nutshell. And I'm not making fun. I know there are times where it's hard to find work. But listen, God designed human beings to be creative and to work. Some people have the idea that work is a punishment handed down by God to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's not the truth. He had work to do, man had work to do before sin entered the world. He was to tend and care for the garden. Work gives dignity. Work gives fulfillment. We're going to talk a lot about this as our Engage conference in a couple of weeks. I'm not going to give it all away, but, but that's God's strategy. If you have good health, if you have a good mind, you ought to work. Do something, make something, provide a service, labor with your hands. Paul did. Paul was a tent maker and he made his living making tents so that he could be free to travel and to, to, to help others. First of all, take care of your family. We, we, that's implied here, but it's, it's said overtly in other places. If a man won't take care of his family, he's worth an unbeliever. And then help those who cannot help themselves, the widows, the infirmed, those who are sick. That's our duty as Christians. Now, the Bible says, do good to all men, comma, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, we owe that kind of generosity to all of our neighbors, but especially those who are in our church. That's where generosity begins. Busy hands. Let's move on. Thirdly, thoughtful words, thoughtful words. Look at verse 29. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
thoughtful words. Perhaps there's no more telling sign of an unbeliever than their rotten speech. Well, we all know people. We've gone to school with them. We work with them. We have neighbors who they cannot utter a sentence without lacing it with profanity, right? But he's not just talking about profanity here. That's the obvious. He, he's talking about those whose pattern of speech always seems to be tainted with that which is a little bit off color. Do, do you know men who are constantly turning your words and making sexual innuendo out of it? Ladies, men, boys and girls, stay away from those people. I have found that almost universally, if a person's speech is always being colored with sexual innuendo, their mind is perverted. And there's actions not far behind those words. So not only should you avoid that kind of speech, you should avoid those whose, whose speech is in that way, even if they claim to be Christians or not. Sexual overtones. And then, and then there are those people who when they speak, their words are like venom, right? They're just so overcome with their own bitterness and hatred and anger that it just bleh, comes out. And whoever's in their path gets mowed down. Now, he's not saying you can't be angry. In fact, he says earlier in this passage, be angry and what? Sin not. So it's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to let your anger carry out to venomous, vile, malicious, angry speech. And so we, we've got to be in control. Now, this reminds me of what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 3. Remember, he describes the human tongue and how powerful it is. And he says, you know, great ships on the seas are controlled by a little rudder. And animals of every kind have been domesticated and tamed and made useful to man. But the human tongue, <laughs> that, that little thing, it's like a spark that can set the whole world on fire. And who can tame it, he says. Well, the implication, of course, is you can't. In and of yourself, it is more powerful than you, but God can, because he's able to work all things together for good for those that love him, right? And even if you, before you were saved, had patterns of profanity and filthy talk and coarse jesting, God, if you will submit to him, will transform you to be a person whose speech, he says, brings grace to all who hear it. He says our speech should be known for its edification. Now, what does the word edification mean? It means to build up. An edifice is a building. So he's saying that when you speak to other Christians, the intent of it ought to be to increase their faith to help them make progress in sanctification rather than tearing them down. He says, let no unwholesome speech. By the way, that word unwholesome in the Greek means rotten. Have you ever been out in the woods walking and you see an oak tree there and from a distance it looks sturdy and solid and you rest your hand on it and it goes right through to the middle? It's rotten. That's the word. Don't let any of those kind of words come out of your mouth, but that which is sturdy and solid and edifying, that brings grace to all who hear it. The Bible says that as Christians, we should be slow to speak, quick to listen, right? But when we do speak, we ought to speak words 
of grace. We need uh, more E.F. Hutton Christians in the world, right? You can explain that to your teenagers when you get home. You remember back in the 70s and 80s, this uh, finance company, E.F. Hutton, they have a commercial of a busy restaurant in New York at, at rush hour and just clamor and suddenly someone in the middle room utters the words E.F. Hutton and everyone drops their fork and stops their speech and leans in to listen to what E.F. Hutton has to say. And their tagline was, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. Well, when God's people speak, everybody ought to listen. We ought to have something of substance to say, something that is in line with the Word of God, something that is, gives grace, he says, for the moment, for that circumstance that they happen to be in. And God will give you those words as you submit even your speech to His will. And you say, well, that's good because I want to have a reputation of someone who has clean speech. That's good. You ought to guard your own reputation. But there's something bigger at play, and that is God's reputation. Because when we leave these doors and we go out into the community this week, and people know that we're a member of a First Baptist Keller or that we're a Christian, we're a child of God, we claim to be born again. Now God's reputation is in play. Of course, we want to do nothing that diminishes or demeans the good name of our Lord. So that's why he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you catch that in verse 30? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed from the day of redemption. Aren't you glad to know that our God is not a distant, unfeeling idol? He's a person. He has feelings. And it's possible to grieve the heart of God. Most of us would rather cut off our right arm than grieve our mother, right? <laughs> we, we don't want to bring sorrow to our mother. How much more so should Christians not want to grieve the heart of their Savior? But we grieve the heart of God when we don't bridle our tongue, when, when we bring about disunity in the church, when we loosen the ties that binds us through dishonesty or through filthy talk or through venomous speech by tearing others down through our words. We agree, he says, don't do that. But of course, Paul understands that it all begins in the heart. Matthew 15, 18, 19, Jesus said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those are the things that defile the man for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and, and slanders. Our judicial system differentiates between hot-blooded crimes and cold-blooded crimes, right? We tend to think of cold-blooded murder as the worst kind of crime. That is, it was not done in a fit of anger. It was cold and calculated and plotted over a long period of time and carried out dispassionately. That's what we say is the worst kind of criminal. Hot-blooded crimes are where you just, in a fit of, of rage, do something normally you wouldn't do. And we, we tend to have less severe punishment for those kind of crimes. But the truth is this. All crimes at their essence are in sense cold-blooded. Because Jesus says they originate where? In the heart. And the things we dwell upon, the things we think upon, the things we allow into our heart, all come together and coalesce and eventually emerge 
through the mouth as speech, but often through the fists as anger. And so he says, the real issue in verse 31 is you need a tender heart. Yes, you need honest lips. Yes, you need busy hands. Yes, you need honest communication, but, but you need first and foremost a tender heart. Do you remember in the book of Ezekiel, the promise to Israel in his vision is that he was going to take Israel's heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, right? And so as Christians, that's what's happened to us. One of the ways we can describe regeneration, new birth, is that God has replaced the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. I can say that honestly, because look at verse 17 here in the same chapter four of Ephesians. We saw this last week. He says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. He says they've become callous. They've become unfeeling. They're, they're past the point of sensitivity. But he says, not so you. You've been given a new heart in Christ and now you should be sensitive to the things of God. And, and men, I know this is especially hard on us because we've been taught not to show emotion, not to be tender hearted, but to be cold, and especially on the sports field especially in business. It's a dog eat dog world. If I show any area of weakness, they'll pounce upon it. And, and don't you know, pastor, that good guys finish last anyway. Well, I would rather finish last on earth than first in heaven, wouldn't you? What, what are you working for? What are you playing for? Is it for the glory of God and for his applause or, or is it the the baubles and toys and trinkets of life that everyone else is pursuing. He, he's talking here about the meat and potatoes of Christianity, how we're to be fundamentally different than that culture we are emerging from. The culture is full of lying and deception and dishonesty. You tell the truth. The culture is full of crime and dishonest gain. You work hard and help those who are less fortunate. The culture is full of filthy talk and profanity and dirty stories. You remain clean with a pure conscience before God. The world is cold and calloused and hard. You be tender. You be malleable. You be sensitive to the things of God and to other people. In short, dear one, he, he's calling us to be like Jesus. Because really when what he's describing here is, is the Lord. Did Jesus ever tell a lie? No, he was incapable of it. Was Jesus a hard worker? I'm sure he was. Grew up in a carpenter's home. Was Jesus a person whose speech built up those around him? You bet. Was Jesus a person who had a heart that was tender and kind? Of course. In fact, he uses Jesus as the example as he closes this passage. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The reason we forgive others or are capable of forgiving others is that we have experienced that same forgiveness which is a product 
of the kindness of the Lord. The scripture says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And it may be that it's your kindness with a person at work or on your football team or in your band who mows your yard, who cleans your house, who plays golf with you. It's your kindness and it's your clean speech and it's your honest lips and it's your work ethic that will open their eyes to see a different way of living and give you the opportunity to speak a good word for Christ. There's a phrase in this section that it says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Peter refers to Satan as a lion who is roaming about seeking who he can destroy. And if you know anything about lions, they, they skulk about in the high grass and in the bar ditches and they wait upon that one which is vulnerable and weak and left behind and they pounce and, and they destroy. And so he, he's saying, walk circumspectly in your life so you don't have an area of vulnerability. And, and the best medicine is preventative medicine, right? If you stay strong in these areas, you'll not be vulnerable. That's true of an individual, it's true of a church, it's true of a marriage. But then he gives the positive side of that in verse 32. And he holds up Jesus, our Redeemer. He says, here's your Savior. Pursue him. Walk in his image. Make progress in sanctification until he comes or he calls you home. That's as simple as it gets, right? That's meat and potatoes Christianity, but it's what we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the fundamentals of our faith. Lord, we need to hear it again because uh, we forget. And we get in bad patterns and old habits return. And so, Lord, we pray now that this message would uh, find its mark in the hearts of these, your people. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take it and brand it to our consciousness and to our heart and that we indeed would be doers of this word and not just hearers of it this morning. As we go out into the world, Lord, help us uh, to be noted by our honest speech, by our busy hands and hard work, our generosity to those in need. Help us, Father, to avoid those patterns of speech that give Jesus a bad reputation. And Father, I pray uh, above all that you would continue to soften our hearts as we meditate upon your word and as we are continuously thankful for the great love by with which you have loved us, by which we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know that forgiveness, that today would be the day that they submit their heart and their life to Jesus. I pray you'd encourage hearts here today. Help us part company with a deeper desire to obey you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.